ahead and grab a seat and grab your Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible around you, you can find, or you don't own one, you can find one somewhere in a pew, somewhere around you. It says the story on top of it. If you don't own a Bible and need one, we'd love to give that to you and for you to take that home. What we'd ask is when you get home, there are some pages in the very front that are printed in color, glossy paper. If you would read those when you get home, it'll give you kind of an overview of what we really believe the whole story of the Bible is about, um, which in one word is Jesus, but it kind of gives a little more detail as to what that is. Uh, a reminder of one of the ways we do discipleship with children here uh, is, is we, we believe that disciple-making is the single most effective thing in the world that will change the world, that will revitalize a church, that will change a community, that will change your family and your life. Uh, and so with kids, uh, on every first and third Sunday, uh, the kids are in the hideout across the hallway studying the same text that we're studying. On the second, fourth, and this month has a fifth Sunday, the kids are in service with us, and we've got a special bulletin for them that has the text that we're studying today, some games and ways for them to engage the text as well as they listen and and hang out with us. And so uh, if you don't have one of those bulletins for your kids, if you would raise your hand and we can get one to you if you need it. Um, And so we'll make sure that you're taken care of with that. Uh, As you turn to Galatians chapter 2, I want to talk about a couple things. One, uh, I, I don't know about you, I love an underdog story. I love redemption stories. I love ideas of, uh, you know, the little guy winning. Rudy, the movie Rudy, makes me cry every time I watch it, which I watch it at least once a year. I'll, I'll, I'll watch it because it's one of my favorite movies ever. The other thing I love is I love like HGTV shows where they take like these dilapidated homes and they, they you know, breathe new life into them. And I grew up in a, in a, in a family where we flipped homes and my mom's an interior decorator. And, and so we would, we would buy homes and we would fix a bunch of stuff. And so I grew up laying tile and fixing stuff. And, and so I love shows like that. Me and my wife were watching one recently with Dale Earnhardt Jr. And his wife bought a house in Key West, Florida. And renovating it, and, it was, and they were part of the renovation process to which Dale Earnhardt Jr. broke almost everything uh, in the process. He pulled out the water pipe, he broke several other things while he was uh, trying to be a construction guy. He should probably stick to driving cars. Um, one of my other favorite shows that I like to watch is Undercover Boss. Anybody watched Undercover Boss? Now, here's why I like Undercover Boss, right? Because it, it's just fascinating to watch. You don't you you would you would act different if you knew the boss was there, but you don't, right? And so they always, I mean, they always pick some story, some like sob story, some guy that's a single dad and he has to bring his daughter to work with him all the time and he can't afford daycare and he's riding a broken bicycle to work and but he's like the best worker ever. And so the boss like not only gives him a raise, but like elevates him in the company and is like at the next training conference I want you to come train all the trainers and it's always this amazing like Cinderella story in there but every once in a while you'll get some guy that really regrets being on undercover boss every once in a while you'll get this and there was one recently I watched this guy uh, and he man he was just a jerk to his employees and he was just barking at him, and when the guy who's the CEO of the company was asking him, hey, why do you talk to people that way? He was like, you know, I just got to establish authority in their lives. I got to let them know who the boss is, and he's talking to the boss. He said, I just got to let them know who the boss is, and so they always have that moment at the end of the show where the boss gets to sit face to face, and he's changed his appearance back, and he says, hey, I'm the CEO, and and, uh, and so there's that great moment where he looks across from him, and as soon as he says that, the guy just goes, oh, gosh. See, I think sometimes we think about the gospel like it's a Cinderella story, right? Like we're the, 
We're, we're, we're this, you know, Cinderella cleaning, cooking, clearing out the clutter, your wicked stepmother, and then a blink of the eye, we become the bell of the ball. Or, or, um, or, is this, or it's Aladdin, this petty thief who gets to become the prince. Or even in the Bible, the story of David and a little shepherd boy taking lunch to his brothers on the front line and then defeating a giant. And we, I think sometimes we think the gospel is taking something that's pretty good and giving significant improvement to it. Here, here's what I want to tell you is, is that's, that's not it at all. Here, the, the gospel is more like if the undercover boss came in and you were a drunk who was stealing money from the company and he said, I'm going to make you the CEO. I'm, I'm, you're, you're vice president. You're right there in control. But here's why we don't have shows like that. If you were to do that, that'd be a really dumb idea, wouldn't it? You don't want to take this guy who's really bad at his job, has horrible character, horrible work ethic, and give him full reign of the company. But see, it doesn't work, and here's why that wouldn't work. Here's why it wouldn't work to just go grab some random person who's thrown their life away making bad decisions and then pay off all their debt, give them a house, give them a car. give them. Right, here's why it doesn't work to just do that. If you haven't changed their heart, then their behavior is going to continue the same, right? See, if, if the gospel were to be a show on TV like that, it would be called The Great Exchange. The Great Exchange. See, what, what Jesus does on the cross is not take a good person and make them better. What Jesus does on the cross in his resurrection is not take a good religion and just make it a better version. He takes dead, wretched men and women who are hostile enemies against God and he renews their heart and renews their mind and makes them new people. All the old is gone and the new has begun. He takes our place It's far more than a Cinderella story. And if we're not careful, we'll make it about it being an improvement story. And we'll take ourselves and just try to improve ourselves in the gospel. And we'll fall into either legalism or people-pleasing. I want you to see in the text today, freedom. Everybody say freedom. Freedom in Christ. And the unity of that that gospel freedom gives us. So if you would stand with me, let's read Galatians chapter 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out that our, our free, our spe- to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and for those who seemed to be influential what they were makes no difference to me god shows no partiality those i say who seemed influential added nothing to me on the contrary when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. 
only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned, for he for before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For though the law, for through the law I did I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that as we look at your word this morning, you would be clear to us. Like we just sang that you would speak truth to us. That your word would transform us by the renewal of our minds. I love you, Lord. I need you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. There is two words, really, that seem to uh, be kind of over-themes of this whole chapter. Uh, And really all throughout Galatians. Freedom and unity. The freedom that we have in Christ and the unity that the gospel seeks to bring into our lives. And so I want to talk to you about five ways that I see in this that the gospel seeks unity in the body of Christ. Uh, when I, and, and so when I say the church in this text today, I want you to understand I mean the church, the capital C church, the, the body of Christ as a whole, all of God's children as the body of Christ. And so as we go through this, one of the first things we see here is that Uh, unity is not something that just comes through conformity. It doesn't just come through being passive or being a doormat. Unity comes through confronting things that need need to be confronted, confirming things that need to be confirmed, and challenging things that need to be challenged. So the first thing we see is confronting heresy. There's this idea. Paul has been doing ministry amongst the Gentiles for some time now, which just as a side note, uh, I think it's fascinating as we see in the text later that he says that God had given an apostolic ministry to the Gentiles to Paul and an apostolic ministry to uh, the Jews to Peter. And here's why I think that's fascinating. It, it, It does away with any excuses we make about what ministry God might call you to, right? And so when we talk about loving your neighbors and caring for your neighbors or caring for our community, you may see things that make, that make you go, that's just not me. I'm not comfortable with those kinds of people. I'm not comfortable doing those sorts of things. I'm not qualified to have that conversation. I don't know enough answers. 
But see, isn't it fascinating that one of the most educated Jewish men of all time, Paul, he was educated under Gamaliel, which is one of the highest of the rabbis to train under the schools. He was educated in a high, high level school. He'll tell you later his resume and other letters that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, a Jew among Jews, that whatever you wanted to say, however Jewish you think you are, Paul goes, I'm more Jewish. However, you good, however good you are at following the Jewish law, Paul goes, I'm better. And whatever it is, whatever understanding of the Torah, Paul is superior. Yet, who does God send Paul to? Gentiles. People who he would have spent the majority of his life considering untouchable dogs. Unclean, filthy dogs is how he would have described them. And now, this highly educated man in the Torah is ministering to people who may not even care about the Torah. When he says, let me tell you all my great knowledge about this Torah wisdom, these are people who don't even understand the Torah, nor desire to, maybe. Then you've got Peter, Peter's this guy, uneducated, Galilean fisherman, good old boy, who can't seem to keep his foot out of his mouth. And God gives him a successful ministry amongst who? The Jewish people. It seems in our wisdom, I would have asked Paul to go to the Jews and Peter to go to the Gentiles. But in God's wisdom, he sends us where we are most dependent on him. So, Whatever excuses you make about ministries that God calls you to, you can throw those away. Because it's actually dependence on the Lord that makes you the most qualified. So, but we see here, Paul, amongst this ministry of the Gentiles, starts to get word that there's this idea that there are the 12 apostles, the the teachers, the disciples that have their ministry amongst the Jewish people, and that Paul kind of has his own thing. Maybe you've even seen or heard something like that on like the History Channel or the Discovery Channel. Some secular historians say that Christianity today is really just a result of a battle between Paul and the 12 disciples, and Paul kind of was more influential. And so what we have today is not really true Christianity, but a, a Pauline version of Christianity. See, that idea was already coming up. And so Paul goes, you know what? He felt, he felt some sort of prompting by God in Revelation, and he had, it says, some fear. Now, I want to understand the fear that he has. I don't think Paul, based off of the context of Galatians 1 and, and, and 3, even what you see him saying, I don't think Paul has fear that he's wrong. I don't think Paul's going, I, I hope I haven't gotten this wrong. I hope I'm not supposed to be Am I supposed to be ministering to Gentiles? I think I am. I think that's what God's asked me. I don't think that's the fear. I think Paul's fear is a fear of disunity in the body of Christ. That they wouldn't be aligned on on what, that he wouldn't be running this race and, and divided from his brothers in Christ. And that they, that he wouldn't be running something that is going to get completely derailed by other parts of the church. So he takes this trip with Titus to go to the disciples. And so 14, 17 years later, depending on how you count it, not really important. The important thing is that he was called by Christ, not the apostles, that he is led by Christ, not the apostles. He didn't feel the need to run to the apostles for confirmation. I think he felt the need to help unify the church to make sure they were all on the same page. Now, verse 3 says this, But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now, I want to step on a soapbox for a minute. I think you need to understand something significant that just happened here. Paul changed the dynamic of the conversation 
by bringing a Gentile Greek into the conversation. Now, here's where I want us to think about it in application to today. We often live in echo chambers. Everybody say echo chamber. Do you know what an echo chamber is? Echo chambers, here's what I mean when I say we live in echo chambers. We listen to news that affirms what we already believe. We talk to people and have conversations with people about what's going on in the world with people who already believe and see the world the same way that we do. And so they just continue to affirm our ideas. And so we build our worldview and shore up the foundation of its truth and reality based on people who already agree with us. Here's why that's dangerous to live in an echo chamber. There's no challenge to what you believe. We should never be scared of hearing another perspective. We should always pursue truth. And I don't know that you can truly pursue truth in an echo chamber. Listen to me. If the only opinions you interact with are people who are just going to agree with whatever you think and say about the world and the way you see it, you're robbing yourself of a real experience in knowledge. See, Paul brings a Greek into the conversation because the primary, the primary issue here is the application of Jewish law to Gentile people. Now, doesn't it change it a little bit when there's one standing in the conversation with you that gets to share his perspective? Now, again, our emotions and our experiences do not build our truth. What does? The Word of God. This is what builds our truth. But I want to challenge you. Rather than standing there and saying, those people, and whatever your those people are, right? Whether it be political whether it be racial, whether it be socioeconomic, whether it be cultural, whether it be national, whatever your those people are, until you sit down with someone who disagrees with you and hear what they have to say, you don't have a fully formed and educated opinion. That may not be a popular stance. And I'm okay with that. Here's what I would challenge you to do. Find a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ, that has a different political, racial, socioeconomic, or national perspective than you, and sit down and really hear them out. See, I'm convinced the world would be a better place if we all just took an introduction to formal debate class. Here's what I mean by that. Whenever I did a little bit of debate in high school and college, forensics debate, and here's what we learned. You cannot truly debate an an opposing opinion until you understand that opinion well enough to articulate it to the opposition in such a way that they agree with you. Does that make sense what I'm saying? In other words, you, you can't just throw out straw man arguments and say, yeah, well, you always think this. When you want to do this, and they go, no, 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 that's, that's not true. And you go, yeah, it is. That's what you said. That's what's called a straw man argument. What I'm saying is you need to investigate and listen to their perspective no matter how much you disagree with them. I'm not telling you even to agree with them. But I'm telling you, you can't poke holes in someone's argument until you even know what their argument is. I don't know I've stepped, it seems a little bit off the sidelines here, but here's, I need you to get this. I think this is why Paul brings Titus. This whole conversation that he's having with the disciples is pretty serious. And so Paul doesn't want to have a whole conversation about Gentiles without a Gentile being a part of the conversation. Yet we often have conversations about whatever political party we disagree with, whatever policies we disagree with, whatever race we disagree with, whatever socioeconomic thing, nationality, all these things we hold, these prejudices, and and we can spew our opinions and our thoughts about those people without ever sitting down in proximity 
But here's what you need to understand. And then I'll move on from my soapbox. When we lack proximity, we will always lack empathy. I'm going to say it again. When we lack proximity, closeness, we will always lack empathy. It is hard to be compassionate about someone you don't care about. And it's hard to care about someone you don't know. So I would challenge you. Find somebody that sees the world in opposition to you. And get some proximity. Have compassion with them. Because here's what you understand. Unity in the body of Christ does not mean conformity in all things. Unity in the body of Christ is understanding that under the banner of the gospel, that that is a unity that transcends all divisions. That we ought to be able to disagree on several things, but find unity in fellowship in Christ. So a Republican and a Democrat and a Libertarian ought to be able to sit and have fellowship together in Christ and not have to be divided. People of different races and different agendas ought to be able to sit in true fellowship. People of different socioeconomic statuses and national, national backgrounds and all these things ought to be able to have true, real fellowship because the gospel unifies in a way that transcends all division. And we ought to expose ourselves in proximity. Now, look at verses 4 and 5. I'll get off that soapbox for a moment. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped to spy out our freedom that we in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. The gospel seeks unity by confronting heresy. We don't sit silently and let heretical teachings go by. Wolves will come in quietly. And they will look a lot like sheep. And we can't sit silently and let that happen. It also seeks unity, the gospel does, by confirming right doctrine. Look at verses 6-9. through And those, and from those who seemed, I love the way he says this in verse 6, from those who seemed to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed, so those who seemed to be influential, not that it matters to me, but again, those who seemed to be influential, who think that they mean something, added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, and on and on, the, the, it says in verse 9 that the disciples gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me. They affirmed the calling of God. We cannot go about our lives letting the wrong people's opinions shape what we do. Legalism is one thing that seems to keep us in track. This idea of I've got to make this checklist and in order for God to love me, I have to do this and I have to do this and I have to do this. And then the other part of it sometimes that can get us is the way that people view us. And sometimes people who seem to be influential influence us far more than the word of God. Sometimes we we hand over authorship of our lives to those who surround us. The opinions of people who we don't even really like all that much, we let shape what we do. One of the main reasons that people say they don't share the gospel more is fear of rejection. We too often give the opinions of others too much power in our lives. God's call to be obedient was not when it was convenient and with people who were going to receive it well. 
God's call to make much of his name was a call to make much of his name. As you go about your life to all people, to all nations. Paul doesn't seem to let the opinions of others shape him too much. He doesn't seem to do this. There's this rising number of people that are coming against him. They're saying that he's preaching a different gospel than the apostles. They say that because of his radical inclusion of Gentiles without forcing them into Jewish law and tradition. This wasn't as big a deal for most of the disciples because their ministry was pretty much entirely amongst Jewish people. And Paul was kind of the first one to really go out there amongst the Gentiles and start taking the gospel out to people who weren't Jewish. And he's got this seems radical that he's involving these people because, see, like a home improvement show, there was this idea that the gospel, that the Messiah was, was just an improved version of Judaism. That you take Judaism and you just make it a little bit better because now we've got the Messiah. What we need to see is the great exchange. That he, that we don't, we are no longer under ceremonial law to present ourselves as holy and clean and righteous to God because that was always inadequate. But through the blood of Jesus Christ, we stand holy before a holy and righteous God. Through His blood, through His sacrifice, through His payment, through His atonement, we are ceremonially holy and righteous. We can't base our theology on emotions or experiences like we've said. We have to base it on Scripture. But listen, we have to base it on Scripture even when it's not convenient, even when it goes against our emotions, even when it feels like it's asking a lot of us. I love the old Mark Twain saying. Mark Twain has a great way with words. He was a little bit rough around the edges. You may just know him for Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn, but he wrote a lot of really interesting things about Christianity. And he's famous for saying, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that bother me. It's the parts of the Bible that I do understand that cause me trouble. Right? If, here's the thing. If, if you read God's Word and it never kind of rubs against you and makes you feel like, oh gosh, I, ugh, I don't know that you're really reading it. Because it's going gonna, it's gonna to knock off some edges. It's going to challenge you to step outside of what's comfortable for you. It's going to challenge you to go beyond what you think you're able of doing. It's going to challenge you to find yourself in dependence on Christ and not yourself and your giftings. And so we have to be willing to go to God's Word as the ultimate authority in our lives and then affirm it even when it's not convenient. See, the, the disciples, when Paul shows up with Titus, would have had the backing of a lot of people to say, your boy Titus has got to get circumcised. He's got to follow the Jewish law. He's got to, he's got to be just like one of us. There would have been a lot of people that would have backed him. As a matter of fact, it, it caused some issues. It was difficult for them to live out. It was difficult for them to accomplish because, see, not only should we be willing to search God's Word for truth in, in, in affirmance, even when it's uncomfortable, we should then go beyond affirming and live it out. And so the gospel seeks unity by challenging to right living. Look at verse 10, and we'll see it, this idea really even further as we go. Verse 10, it's, it feels random at first read. So they've affirmed to Paul... Your ministry amongst the Gentiles is legit. Your, this, this Christian liberty that we have in Christ that frees us from ceremonial law is legit. It's real. 
It's the real thing. And we're going to affirm that even with the social cost that comes from it. But I love this thing that it seems random. They go, only they asked us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. At first three, that feels like a really random, like, hey, you're doing great. Just don't forget to minister to poor people. And then it just keeps on going. I think if we're not careful, we could miss this idea. Look, what's crazy is how we could miss it. If you read this book, this is a constant theme in Scripture. This was a constant cry of Jesus. This was a, this, listen, caring for the poor is not a characteristic for some people who care for the poor. Caring for the poor is part of living out the gospel. A, listen to me, a non-negotiable part. Do you catch that? In the midst of this controversy about legalism and, and circumcision and all these things, they affirm the Apostle Paul, but they make sure to go, but hey, don't miss part of the heart of God. Care for the poor. Care for the poor. This has always been part of the heart of God. Always. Now, what does that look like in your life? I don't know the specifics for each and every person and what that looks like. I know if you think back to our sermon on Nehemiah a few weeks ago, when, when, when we encounter the poor, we really have three options. Ignore them, avoid them, or engage them. I want to recommend a book to you if you're interested in what it looks like for you to engage the poor in a way that's helpful. It's called When Helping Hurts. It's a really powerful book on what it looks like. And the subtitle of the book is How to Alleviate Poverty Without Hurting the Poor or Yourself. And Really, one of the premises of the book is that poverty is not merely a financial issue. As a matter of fact, it's really not a financial issue is what they argue. As a matter of fact, they argue that so much, and this is two economics guys that write this, Christian economics, Christian missionaries that, that are economics guys, and they argue through studying, even of the World Bank, there was a survey the World Bank secular organization did amongst people who are financially destitute, asked them to define poverty, and nine out of ten of them, nine out of ten of people, remember what we said, get people's perspectives that have a different perspective of you? So instead of us defining poverty, those of us who aren't in it, what if we went and asked people who are how they define poverty? What if we got their perspective? And so they asked them, and 9 out of 10 in their definition did not say lack of material resources. They said a feeling of hopelessness, of voiceless, having no purpose in the world, being alone, having no one who cares for them. This is how 9 out of 10 financially destitute people in the world define poverty. When Jesus tells us to care for the poor, he doesn't mean write a check. Right? Look at poverty situations that we've been pouring money into for decades. Have they improved? No. You can pour all the money in the world, right? And it's like we said earlier. You don't just go grab a random guy who's throwing his life away making bad decisions and give him a brand new house and a brand new car and, and a job and think that everything's going to be okay. See, poverty's really about broken relationships. It's a broken relationship with God. 
It's a broken relationship and understanding of yourself. It's a broken relationship with your family and your community around you. It's a broken relationship with your role and purpose in the world. And here's what's really great. Here's what I love about that book and why I'm recommending it to you. What is the one thing that answers all those broken relationships? The gospel. The gospel answers all of those things. But here's the thing. I, I, I'm, I, you got to think about this. If it's broken relationships, we can't just go throw a track, right? That's not a relationship. So here's what I love about that book. is It doesn't give you an easier solution. It gives you a far more difficult solution. As a matter of fact, you will probably be a little bit overwhelmed as you read the book at the reality of what it really takes to help people in poverty. Because here's what it takes. It's a word we used already. Proximity. And empathy. It takes really getting into their lives. Well, Pastor, there's so many. You can't get into everybody's lives. Jesus never said it was your job to solve all poverty. As a matter of fact, you know what he said? That they would always be with us. They would always be the poor. The poor are a constant reminder of the brokenness of this world. And here's what what you also got to understand about the way that that defines poverty. You could have all the money in the world and be poor. You could have all the money in the world and have a broken relationship with God, a broken relationship with yourself, a broken relationship with your community, a broken relationship with your role in the world. And when we realize that we don't have all the answers and that we don't have it all together and we're not there to fix everybody, and we realize that we're just as broken as everybody else in this world, we're just as broken as the guy sleeping under a bridge tonight, when we realize that, and we realize that the answer is the gospel, and we approach it with proximity, with empathy, we live out the heart of God. So we can't, last thing I'll say about this verse, and we've got to move on. Why do they add this seemingly random verse in the middle of this theological discussion? Because Christianity is not primarily academic. Christianity is not primarily theological. See, many people will spend their entire lives going to Sunday school, going to church, memorizing facts. They can tell you all the books of the Bible. They can tell you random historical facts. They can tell you archaeological facts. They can tell you all these things, but they've never lived their life in proximity to the poor. They've never lived out the heart of God and shined the light of the gospel into the darkness of the world. They've never risked themselves in the purpose of making much of Jesus. And when I think, listen to me, I'm going to make a bold statement. I think if that's your life, as all you've had is going to church and learning things and learning things, but you've never lived out what you've learned, then you will be like many that Jesus calls out in Matthew 7, 21, who will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this? Didn't I do this? And his response will be, depart from me. I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness. See, I think the disciples bring this up because it can't just merely be a theological debate. We love to debate things. What if we engage things? What if we really got in and lived out the gospel in messy ways? That's the heart of God. That's exactly what he did when he came from heaven down to us. Number four, the gospel seeks unity by confronting not only heresy, but hypocrisy. But when Cephas, which is Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Not only did he oppose him to his face, he wrote about it here so we could read about it. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they 
came, he drew back and separated himself. Fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas. Barnabas is the dude. Barnabas, got his, Barnabas is a nickname, remember? Remember in Acts, we were studying Barnabas. And Barnabas got the nickname Barnabas because he's like unbelievably generous and encouraging. As a matter of fact, when, when Paul, when Saul gets converted, he's the guy who goes to the terrorist. Saul. And comes along and beside him and, and walks with him. But here even Barnabas gets tripped up and led astray by their hypocrisy. But Paul, when, when he saw their conduct, was not in step with the truth of the gospel. He called them out on it. And he said to Peter and all of them, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. In other words, in your Christian liberty, in your freedom in Christ, when it's convenient for you, you fellowship with the Gentiles and live like a Gentile. But when these Judaizers show up, just like you denied Christ three times, you go, I don't know who those people are. I don't know them. Again, we let the opinions of other people drive our action far too much. We hand over authorship of our lives to the opinions of others rather than in obedience to Scripture. Unity is not about passivity and peace alone. The Christian life, listen to me, is messy. There's not a smooth way to really do this. In Hebrews it says, stir one another up unto good works. The, the, Hebrew, the Greek word used for stir there means like annoy, frustrate. None of us, none of us like to be called out. But how do we grow if we hold off our lives and shelter ourselves in such a way where we keep our faith a private thing, right? This is, that's private. That's, my, that's between me and the Lord. That's not supported in Scripture. As a matter of fact, what's supported in Scripture is living life amongst each other in such a way that we can call each other out and build each other up. 1 Thessalonians 5, admonish the idol on and on and on, this idea of walking and encouraging and sharpening iron, sharpening iron with each other. And so well, what we need to understand about unity is that we can differ on, that, that differ on cultural distinctives. We don't have to, listen, we don't have to be unified in the way we dress. We don't have to be unified in political party. We don't have to be unified in style of music. We don't have to be unified in version of the Bible we like to read. We don't have to be unified in, in, in any of those things. What we need to be unified in is the gospel itself. As a matter of fact, listen, we can differ on personal preferences without being divided on gospel purpose. Gospel purpose is where we find unity. And we've got to call out hypocrisy in our friends. But again, how do we call out hypocrisy in someone we have no real relationship with? Well, how do we have a real relationship with somebody without it getting messy? You, you can't really get into the lives of others without it getting a little bit gritty and messy. But that's how we grow. The final one, this is where the rubber really meets the road. This is where the change happens. This is what makes the difference between a home improvement show and the great exchange. As the gospel seeks unity by crucifying the flesh. Look at this last section. Just look at verse 20. Verse 20 look at verse 19 and 20. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, 
but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. The great exchange is that God has what we need but don't deserve. Righteousness. And we have what God hates and rejects. Sinfulness. So what is God's answer to that situation? The great exchange. His answer is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died in our place and bore our condemnation. But see, we don't just die to our sin, we die to our Selves. We don't just trust Jesus for our salvation. We trust Jesus for our lives. See, we don't just say a prayer and get to go to heaven and then do our best to be good people. We never stop this dependence on Jesus. You being the person God has called and designed you to be means you crucifying the flesh and letting Jesus live through you. That's what it looks like. God's pleasure in you is not based on your behavior. God's pleasure in you is based on Christ's performance in you. Why does he do this? Why the great exchange? Why would he take the the guy who's throwing everything away, who can't even do anything right, why would he come to you and give you the inheritance amongst his son? Because he adores you. Because he's passionate about you. Look at what it says. The son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you trust Jesus with your life today? Would you trust him with salvation if you've never done that? Would you, would you understand that your sinfulness puts you in a position where you literally have nothing to bring to the table with Jesus? Would you trust him with that salvation? Or for those of you who are already children of God, would you trust him with your every day? Would you crucify the flesh and seek gospel unity by letting Jesus live through you? It's going to be messy. It's going to get awkward. It's going to be times that are frustrating going to rub against you a little bit the wrong way but that's how iron sharpens iron and that's how we make his name known pray with me